0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 31 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, an in-depth interview with neurosurgeon Professor Ian Flock on Tigerberg Hospital's COVID-19 robots and why local medics believe the country needs to urgently open up again. There's a warning by the actuaries at Panda that the unintended consequences of the lockdown will kill 29 times more people than the virus itself. We'll have a look at how the new world of office work will be very different to the pre-COVID-19 norm, and a message to struggling companies from a business rescue practitioner who advises them to take the tough decisions sooner rather than later. Inside COVID-19, from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headline, South Africa's cases continue to rise, but at a relatively modest rate, with 236 new infections confirmed on Wednesday. That's the third successive daily decline since Sunday's 447, which is the highest daily number thus far. Total cases in South Africa reached 7,808 Wednesday, while a further five deaths took the total to 153. The Western Cape currently accounts for more than half the reported cases and deaths. By Wednesday night, with more than 10,000 Tests now being conducted daily, there has been a total of almost 280,000 tests in South Africa. Globally, by Thursday evening, Worldometer.info reported total coronavirus cases at 3.85 million and deaths at 266,000, with the United States accounting for around a third of global infections and a quarter of new deaths. The UK's deaths now exceed 30,000, making it the second hardest hit nation on earth, closely followed by Italy, then Spain and France. According to Johns Hopkins University, at 73 per 100,000 of population, Belgium is the worst hit of any nation, followed by Spain at 55, Italy at 49, the UK at 45 and France at 38. The Netherlands is at 30 and the U.S. at 22. That's all per 100,000 people in those countries. One of the few similarities between these nations is that none of them have had a sustained universal BCG vaccine regime. By contrast, BCG vaccinating neighbor Portugal has a per capita mortality rate one-fifth of Spain's while the mortality rate in Mexico, a universal BCG vaccinator since 1951, is one-tenth of its non-vaccinating northern neighbor, the United States. South Africa's horse racing industry says it is on the brink of collapse, with 60,000 direct and indirect jobs likely to be lost if the hard lockdown on the sector continues. The National Horse Racing Authority says... In addition, 400 horses a month face the prospect of being euthanized if the suspension of racing persists. The industry is asking for just 15 minutes of racing per day to be introduced behind closed doors with 65 people per course sufficient to ensure that eight races could be held with all COVID-19 health and safety protocols followed. South Africa is the world's eighth most important horse racing market—that's of 65 countries where the sport is held. It's a significant exporter of thoroughbreds and a foreign exchange generator through its television broadcasting of races held here. In a study of 17.5 million UK adults, the largest such investigation, the University of Oxford and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine have concluded that irrespective of their financial situation, Asian and black people have the highest mortality risk from coronavirus. It also confirmed through this study that men are at higher risk as well as older people and those with uncontrolled diabetes and severe asthma. The study, which was done for Britain's National Health Service, linked patients that have been hospitalized through COVID-19 with their primary care records. The world's largest entertainment company, Walt Disney, says the pandemic knocked operating income by $1.4 billion in the March quarter, a decline of 37%. It expects much worse in the three months to end June, saying the coronavirus brought practically every part of the Disney machine to a halt. In another reflection of the new post-coronavirus world, Uber and its smaller rival Lyft have both announced that they expect fewer passengers in future. In anticipation, Uber has already cut about 14% of its workforce. Lyft says it will be laying off 17% of its staff. Lyft reported that its ridership plunged 75% in April. Inside COVID-19, from
1: Biz News. South Africa's COVID-19 lockdown may cause 29 times more deaths in the long run than the virus. That is a stark message from Pandemic Data and Analytics, or PANDA, who have compiled a report that they've handed over to the presidency. The coordinator of PANDA, Nick Hudson, says the government's mantra that the lockdown saves lives and that it is lives versus the economy is a false dichotomy. Poverty due to the lockdown could in the long run be a bigger killer than COVID-19, he explained to Biz News who Panda was.
2: Panda is a, a, a collection of people who were concerned about the same thing and joined forces to see what could be done about it. So we were very worried, individuals, just personally about the future of our country and we thought that the, country's, the country was being placed at great risk. So what the, the guys have in common is an interest in addressing that problem, but it's diverse. There's some actuaries, uh, data scientists, there's a doctor, there's a lawyer, you know, so it's a diverse group and um, with different skills, which has helped, you know, doing that analysis required a little bit of uh, head scratching and how are we going to get a grip on that kind of parameter and where are we going to get this kind of data and so there's a, you know, a lot of effort from a lot of people working very hard for the sole purpose of uh, trying to save our Country from what we see as a, a very calamitous set of policy choices. You know, what we thought was a fairly inane kind of argument that we can't prioritise the economy over lives, you know, back into a domain that linked the economy back to lives and livelihoods and try to just make it a lives versus lives debate so that we can at least, you know, discuss it more rationally.
1: So tell me exactly what you found in terms of, of the numbers.
2: Well, look, we pushed things around as, as hard as we could because the way we sort of set about doing it was we tried to, you know, our intuition was that that lockdown was doing more harm same as yours. But uh, the thing to do then is to set up an experiment and say, OK, proves that lockdown is working, you know. And let's do the maths on that. And what we, you know, when you set up the actuarial numbers and say, okay, well, here's the economic damage. This is what happens if we assume it's only this much and that there are only this many jobs and that this many of them are permanently lost and those people slide down the income scale. What happens to their mortality? How many life years do they lose in that process? We do the numbers. Can we show that that number is lower than what is spared by, in theory, by the curve being fattened? And we couldn't. We couldn't even get close. I mean, on our best estimate numbers, it's through the roof. And these very conservative versions of the numbers which we put in our paper spell out that you lose 30 times as many years of life from the economic impact than you save from avoiding the hospital and overburdening. So it's an extreme story. Um, Our numbers have to be out by a lot and by an implausible amount for the answer to be different
1: sure so i see you say the death toll from south africa's coronavirus outbreak this year could range between 46,000 and 88,000.
2: those are not our estimates we're just taking everybody else's estimates we don't believe that they're right and uh, look i mean to be fair to any mod that's you're not going to set up a model that's going to be right in inverted commas but we just took a range of you know other people's estimates and applied the numbers to those because our own version tells a, a story That's not as severe as that, but we didn't want that to be the center of the argument. You know, we weren't trying to model the pandemic. So we just took the most extreme publicly available one and uh, a a lower one, about half that level, and then ran the numbers on those bases just to see what the the range was. And, you know, even when we use that 88,000 assumption and therefore a much bigger hospital overburdening problem, you know, which, which then maximizes the benefit of lockdown. We still couldn't get the numbers to come anywhere near balance.
1: So you've written a letter to President Ramaphosa. where you tell him that in the long run, the lockdown will cause more loss of life than the virus itself.
2: Yes, we, we gave him our, our... We thought it was, you know, when, you, when you're sitting on that kind of information, uh, we tested it first. We went and pushed it past actuaries. It had nothing to do with the, uh, the writing of the article. We tested it as a. Uh, A well-known, acclaimed epidemiologist. And we took their report, their comments on board, checked whether any of the issues they pointed to made any difference to the answer, tightened up our calculations in certain places, um, tightened up the wording in certain places, and then uh, we still had that answer. So we thought, well, you can't sit on this because each week of lockdown is probably taking more years of the life of the population than the virus itself.
1: So what is going to happen to that report? Have you actually physically handed it over to somebody?
2: Yes, it went to the presidency early in the week. I forget which day now. We've received a confirmation that they've got it and that they've pointed it in the direction of the appropriate people. I'd imagine that would be the command council, Um, I don't know. Yeah, and then we'll see what they have to say. Um, But the report's been generally very well received. I think it's telling people what they already knew. You know, it's quite simply that poverty kills people, you know, and that we're setting up a whole lot of poverty here.
1: What would your advice be to the government in light of these figures?
2: My advice would be that we should move to a kind of smarter lockdown, if you like, ending this very oppressive economic lockdown, I think it would make sense for children to go back to school. I think you can open up the whole economy and start doing some cheaper, sensible things like maybe mandating the wearing of masks in public places, uh, public transport. I think there there could be some intelligent things done around making available the opportunity for old, sickly people to protect themselves. You know, if, if the numbers are that are being thrown around in terms of how much money government intends to raise to address the consequences of lockdown and the virus or anything to go by, you could spend a tiny fraction of those and do make an enormous difference for the poorer old people who might be at risk, helping them to stay safe while the virus washes through the population. How many months that takes, a couple of months, you know, give it to them as an option. Uh, That kind of idea. We haven't seen, in our opinion, nearly enough creative thinking around what could be done in that regard. Another thing we think that could be done reasonably cheaply would be to escalate the campaign for uh, getting antiretroviral medication to the unmanaged portion of the HIV positive community in the country, which numbers anywhere between 500,000 and 3 million, depending on who you speak to. You know, that's a public health good any day of the week uh, with or without coronavirus. And that would take away one source of potential concern, that those people are susceptible to dying from coronavirus. It's not certain that they are, but no harm done in getting them onto ARVs. So there are a range of things that could be done to lessen, lessen the impact, to slow the rate of progression of the disease at, at much lower cost, you know, a tiny fraction of the costs being imposed on society by the lockdown. And so we think, yeah, we think that that's the kind of thing that should be contemplated. Um, it's what, what's unfolding before our eyes is a, is a very economically destructive thing. I think it's being underestimated by economists. There's a lot of permanent damage being done in what we would call in, in the economics world in institutional destruction, you know, businesses that are not going to be around after the lockdown.
1: So probably what you asking for was closer to the Sweden model of what they did.
2: Yes, and I think everybody needs to really look carefully at what's gone on there. I mean, over the last however many days, the daily death count has been declining in Sweden, and for every, every two days, uh, The Guardian or any other number of newspaper outlets have been writing these uh, apocalyptic stories about how Sweden is going to go off the charts and everybody's going to die and how awful it is. And that just simply hasn't happened. The, the, the Swedish example suggests that that is possible. Now, of course, there are factors at play in Sweden that might, be, not, might not be at play in other countries. But I do think that people are making rather too much of them. You know, this idea that the Swedes are unique among nations in terms of their natural level of social distancing and that kind of thing, I think is a little bit overplayed. I mean, their children carried on going to school. Right,
1: mm. and yeah.
2: to a, to a Swedish or not, little kids are not great social distances. They're not great hand washers, you know. And <laughs> I know I've got a couple of my own, you know. The, the, uh, the, so they have, in my mind, taken the most mature and least panic approach to this whole thing, and um, it's going to serve them well in the long run, and the economy will do a, a lot better than other countries that are under severe lockdowns. And uh, it must be understood that our, our lockdown in South Africa is of the most restrictive in the world. It's very really hard to manage economy, manage an economy and, you know, centrally control it, centrally plan it. We've known that for, you know, many, many moons, many decades, and this is what we're trying to do. We already know that that's impossible. So... I think these things have many unintended consequences, and uh, the economy is a network thing, it's not a silo thing. If you start knocking out nodes on the network, the network's failing, and that's what's happening. And I think the, the depth of the institutional failing and the, the depth of the cuts into the economy is being underestimated, and it's accelerating.
1: Inside COVID 19,
2: from Biz News.
0: We've been tracking down Professor Ian Flock for quite a while and it's good to have you uh, with us, Professor, to talk about this incredible development at Tigerberg Hospital with robots and how the robots are now going to accelerate the treatment of COVID-19 patients. But for people who are coming for the first time to the medical world, what is the relationship between Stellenbosch University and the Tigerberg Hospital.
3: Effectively, it's it's a single platform where the University of Stellenbosch runs the training part or the education part of medical doctors, undergraduate and then specialists, uh, postgraduate, as as well as the uh, all the ancillary sciences, the physiotherapists, OTs, there's nursing, uh, dietetics, uh, etc. So it's called the Faculty of of um, Medicine and Health Sciences, and obviously. The, the, the practical component of that is Tigerberg Hospital, so they join to each other, and ultimately um, uh, the training, the practical training, then happens within Tigerberg itself.
0: So <laughs> in a way. Sorry, would you question? call it teaching, oh. a teaching hospital?
3: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a, it's, a, it's called a tertiary level hospital. So we have all the what they call the very super specialised facilities, and then the um, and then obviously a, 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 a public hospital for for training and teaching. You're a professor at Stellenbosch
0: University, uh, but you're actually a neuroscientist who operates on uh, on spines.
3: Yeah, well, yeah. So anything soft, you know, that conducts uh, electricity. So basically, a neurosurgeon. So we do uh, brain surgery, spinal cord surgery. So um, all of the, most of the neurosurgeons end up uh, building themselves up in a certain part of of neurosurgery. So my my specific interest is. Uh, there's the spine and, and particularly the cervical spine, so the neck part. But uh, within the collective, there's the, the vascular surgeons, tumor surgeons, skull base surgeons. So we all kind of uh, have our niche. But but at a at a facility like Tigerberg where we have so much pathology, we all effectively are a jack of all trades. So we do, uh, you know, the basics of all of all the pathologies we see and then ultimately focusing on the very nasty stuff on our own super speciality.
0: So kind of COVID-19. <laughs> Sorry. So COVID-19, the uh, getting to that now, the, the robots uh, or Quinton and Selma, as you call them, uh, how, did they, how did you find out about them and what exactly are they going to be doing?
3: So, so at the uh, University of Stellenbosch, uh, the, the Division of Neurosurgery, we developed a skills lab uh, about four years ago, 2016, called SunSkill. And you're welcome to have a look at it. Uh, it's sunskill.co.ca. And this is a world class training facility and inside we've got equipment uh, uh, to to be envious of. It's, it's really phenomenal. But what it does, it creates a platform for our registrars and our trainees to practice on surgical skill. You know, everything from suturing to endo, endoscopic training to uh, whatever you actually can dream of, we can actually simulate it in the lab. And then ultimately uh, translate those skills, improve them and translate them into the practical environment, which is a phenomenal way of of, of teaching any surgical skill now, and part of this sun skill f- is that we have this double robot now what it is it provides us a, an opportunity to tap into the knowledge of our colleagues and, and, and world class specialists that might be sitting in the u s or the u k wherever. So we'll dial into to them, they'll, they'll be there in a virtual presence and talk to our guys and give a lecture or actually uh, just walk around the lab with the robot and, and give a bit of guidance. So it's be, it was initially, a, it still is, a teaching tool. And then once the COVID uh, crisis started hitting, uh, Professor Kuni Kuchlenberg, who runs the respiratory ICU, so he's literally the guy standing in the front, the top of the pyramid. And Kuni uh, contacted me because his wife actually has done some practical stuff within the lab and said, "Well, you know, she thinks that might be a great uh, a great addition." And, and uh, I mean, nobody could argue that. So, so immediately the following day, we we transported uh, Quentin, as they so fondly call him, uh, which uh, which I think is a little bit of a play between uh, Quentin Tarantino, I believe, or Quarantino, you know, so whatever you are, however you choose to, to play it, uh, transported him across uh, all the all the uh, facilities. You know, the wife, everything was completely fine. So. Quinton was deployed right away and immediately made an impact.
0: We we have spoken with uh, ICU doctors uh, on this program in the past, and there's great concern about the mortality rate Mm -hmm. for those who work in the ICUs, although clearly they're hoping with the protective equipment uh, that that is now available to doctors in South Africa that, that they can reduce those ratings. The expectation that we were given was that elsewhere in the world, it's as high as 20 percent because of repeated exposure to COVID-19 using Quinton and uh, perhaps also the other robot is. Is that part of the thinking as well to try and get your frontline uh, soldiers uh, less exposed to this horrible virus?
3: Absolutely. So so part of the people, you know, if you think about the the very sick patients so the ones that's, that's in ICU ventilated or perhaps on high flow oxygen, which, whichever way they are all um, they're managed by a team. It's physiotherapists, nursing, the, the doctors, specialists. Uh, so it's a whole team of people that needs to be present. And it's not like you just can put them into a space and, and then kind of think, you know, this is now what we've done. It, it's, it's a very dynamic situation in terms of ventilator settings and observations and how the body responds to certain interventions. So um, it demands a certain amount of, of presence. And, and this is one thing where you where, um, one has to emphasize. So the robots don't decrease the amount of human presence, but it increases the amount of visitations to the patients and to be able to relay, not only if the patient's, for example, not ventilated, to relay the patient's own experience, but also look at ventilator settings, observations, uh, etc., and to interact with the patients. And then sort of a hybrid in between where the whole team perhaps does not have to be there. For example, I think it was two or three days ago, um, the team entered, but um, deliberately the registrar or the trainee who actually admitted the patients throughout the night stayed outside the unit, did not have to enter. And could actually relay all the patients by virtue of the robot. So he, he was actually speaking to Professor Kuchenberg and his team, um, at the bedside, but, but it actually decreased the exposure of the, of the doctor. So ultimately, um, the amount of contact to the really risky environment is decreased. And also if for some ad hoc situation, you need to pop in there. It's really quick, you know, you sign on, control it and, and, and get there and it's, and it's sorted.
0: Intensivists have told us that the colleagues over the age of 60 are being kept away from COVID-19 patients because of the risk. Would they, in in your environment, because clearly there's quite a lot of experience and skills there, would they be able to use this robot in any way to to make a contribution?
3: Well, absolutely. You know, this is also one of the options that that, that it really provides is that uh, let's say Kuni, for example, falls ill or any of the the major decision making. You, you got to understand the dynamic. You know, everybody's got an ex- exceptionally crucial role. Within the team, but ultimately when it comes to the finer tweaks and stuff, you know, certain things happen at a level. And, um, and let's say Cooney falls ill. He can actually sit at home if he's quarantined or if he's not, you know, completely incapacitated. He can actually manage the robot from there. So, so his presence is not lost. And, And again, you know, the same for if, if there's a second person to sign in. So, so ultimately the, that, that presence is there. And like you said, if there's a high risk group of people that needs to be part of the decision making, but don't have to be there. This, this gives him the option to, uh, to actually be there in a virtual presence. What does Quentin look like? Well, he's actually, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a Segway scooter, you know, those little scooters. Now this is, it's almost like a mini Segway. It's really tiny. It's about, I would say about 20, 30 centimeters in, in width. And then it's essentially like a, a, a pole. And then it's like an iPad on a Segway. So he's got a quite a thin profile. it uh, doesn't uh, take up a lot of space. He He, he can turn on a, on a nickel and he, um, ultimately, uh, uh, docks in a little docking station. So he's always ready to go. And, um, and that's him. He, he, he can become higher or lower, you know, depending on how fast he wants to move. So he's literally at, at about eye height and he stands there right next to you. And, uh, it's, it's like an iPad on wheels, effectively. Can he talk to the patient? Yes. So it's, it's like a Skype interview. It's like uh, the doctor or whoever's using, uh, uh, Quentin is actually his face is on the, on the screen, and he's actually, and he's in control, so he can turn around and talk to whoever he needs to talk to. Uh, the, the little camera module at the top is dynamic, so that actually can zoom in or turn around. So he's got a sort of an optic range that he can work with, and uh, and again, the controls are fairly simple. It's like uh, up, down, left, and right. You know, so you you rotate and you move forward and backwards, and and, and quite sensitive and self-righting. So, which means if you somebody were to knock it or if it rides into drives into a bed, for example, he, he doesn't uh, fall over. So it's a uh, it's very clever tech.
0: Professor Flock, is anyone else using Quintin Lookalux elsewhere in the world or elsewhere in South Africa?
3: If you look at, uh, I think that the telepresence for one, you know, is, is usually a static type of entity. But uh, um, there are products like this available. A couple of makers, I think this is called, this is a product from what we call double robotics. So, and um, and they are highly rated uh, in the world. There, there are a couple of other ones, uh, but I haven't seen any in South Africa. Um, I, I do believe there's an engineering company uh, who is busy designing a solution for, for a local, you know, I want to say low cost. I want to say... Uh, uh, a local South African cost uh, product. Um, hopefully, to actually do this, to actually give people the option to uh, to sign in and decrease their own risk uh, where they need it in high risk uh, environments. Uh, our own, you know, unit. We've got a ventilated unit, and you know, the moment you start dealing with patients that's unknown, you know, th- there's a fear factor amongst everybody. You know, so and and again, probably sometimes unfounded, but uh, that's the reality of of everything that's been going on around us. So. Uh, to be able to substitute yourself, whichever part of that that uh, group of of uh, management team you are part of, is a, is a wonderful uh, privilege.
0: How are you guys feeling at Tigerberg Hospital about COVID nineteen and the tidal wave that we told is coming?
3: Yeah, so ultimately everything is, um, you know, we adapt. You know, we we figure uh, there's this fear of what's coming, then it then it arrives, and then you start just dealing with it. So yes, we are slowly seeing the numbers increasing. I think the Western Cape uh, uh, had, a, had a, a good chat to the Head of Occupational Health yesterday, and we, we have a very good testing uh, principles, you know, contact tracing. Uh, so the testing is, is done very, very uh, thoroughly, at least uh um, in our environment, I understand, and that that leads to a lot of numbers. You know, so we are picking up the positive patients. It's, this is an unavoidable condition. It's 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 beyond any any restriction, so it can't be contained. So we have to deal with it. And I think at the moment we've reached that level where, in my you know feedback that I get from the stats guys, is that it's it's kind of like a consistent. Volume at this point in time, you know, we constantly have patients in ICU. The wards are, or the COVID wards are, are fairly saturated. But there is a dynamic within them. You know, patients are getting better. We are getting better at treating them as well. We've we have learned a few things, and and, and I think that's a good place to be, and where people are getting used to 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 being uh, um, careful, if if you call it that. And ultimately, that um, that. Then, 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 then kind of settles the nerves a bit. You know, I think if, the, if there's a, a, a double wave of what we're currently seeing, I think there's the next set of uncertainty. But for now, you know, the, the wheels are turning and we're managing to, to contain it and at least manage patients. And everybody has now figured out their role. You know, there's, there's special pathways going to COVID theater and there's special radiology pathways, et cetera. So that, you know, and the reality is, you know, TB didn't go to bed. You know, it's still around and, and trauma is, is, you know, people are, whether it's, the lack of alcohol or alcohol or scallum alcohol, I don't know, but uh, alcohol seems to be, it, 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 the lockdown has decreased our trauma significantly, but now it's creeping up again, you know, so, so the workload, the standard workload still is, is upon us, you yes, know, and we, we have to manage that within the COVID, uh, the COVID crisis. And well, from a neurosurgical point of view, people that come into our unit are typically very ill and need uh, quite urgent intervention.
0: If you could go back six weeks, uh, when the lockdown was brought into South Africa, had that not occurred, had we done the Swedish route, for instance, yeah. how would our medical uh, practitioners have coped?
3: You know, I think the Swedish uh, model, the herd immunity model and everything is, is become quite topical, you know, because people are becoming, you know, most people are saturated. You know, they, they now done with it. People are now actually in a lot of trouble economically. And, uh, and I mean, I, I, I don't dare express my opinion there too much, but I'll say this. Our country is not like Sweden, where there can be an announcement and everybody will wear masks and everybody will (coughs) perform social distancing. I think ours is not a a a first world country. Whether that's uh, entitled makes you more compliant, I don't know. But in Sweden, it's easy to decree something and uh, and and it be followed. Uh, at the same time, you know, if you've got 3,000 fatalities already, if you, you, it depends how you look at the percentages. If it's per million, you know, yes, okay, they, they are on par with a lot of other countries. If it's per tests, you know, they, they don't doing very, they're not doing very well. But ultimately, you know, they have achieved or they looks like they're going to achieve what we ultimately also aiming for. You're going to ask me what, what, what did we learn or did, what did we benefit out of the, the lockdown? Um, at the, firstly, it's getting systems in place. It's, if if there was going to be a flood of patients amidst the, the the singularity that is our usual work, you know that 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 is an entity that is just an epidemic bigger than anything else. The trauma and, and and the extreme pathologies, we we would have we would have tanked, you know, at least in the public service, it it would have been too much. And right now we've managed to contain it and we've managed to to do that. I think our lockdown's biggest benefit was education. I think people are aware, people are wearing their masks. they are Performing social distancing and look, you can't uniformly apply that. You know, there's the skeptics, there's the uh, people who always believe they can buy themselves out of problems. You know, if there's the la- water restriction, I can have a boreal. If there's a <laughs> you know power cuts, I can have an inverter. It's um, you know, there's always a solution. Yeah, there's no solution. Yeah, you got to follow the rules. And I think. If um you, you it is you know effectively a very nasty flu or or influenza um where people also die from, but in this case you know there are very clear high risk patients so the the way forward isolate those people high risk patients older people you know make very sure that they are not exposed, and for the rest of us. I would I would be an advocate of, of of fairly rapidly introducing business as usual, you know, with masks and social distancing, and ultimately create that Swedish model, but now it's on our terms. Um, and you know, hindsight uh, if, I don't know what we if if we didn't do it, I think we've been in disaster. We are getting into disaster as well, not from COVID, but from many many other things. But uh, I don't think there was a win win in this uh, in, in this uh, hand of cards. You know, it, it was always going to be be trouble.
0: But as a scientist looking back on it, you've you've got you've had the opportunity to prepare. Mm-hmm. Can we get any better prepared
3: no, I don't than think we so. are? Or is- I don't think so. I've, you know, colleagues in private private facilities have all got their their things going on. I think uh, in the public service we are we are as jacked up as we can be. You know, we've got high turnover. We're managing it nicely. And well, look, I'm only speaking for my facility at least. Um, uh, but um, so we, we are as ready as we can be. And if we're going to get flooded, the people who suffer from the flooding is the people who have the non near fatal conditions, you know, the, not, not the, the, the fatal conditions and that. And we we'll, we can only see that impact in time. But as it stands for now, um, we are coping. And I think also, you know, neurosurgical perspective, we, you know, we're operating, we, we are operating slides that have been cut down, but still to an extent where we can manage all our emergency services. We, we, our emergency service is still functioning very well. And um, and now we're also learning. You know, we're looking at the numbers. You know, Western Cape seems to be picking up. Looking at a peak at June, July. Now they 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 would suggest. Um, so we're all kind of taking it day by day. But uh, the system is still functioning amidst the lockdown. Um, well, you know, one of the scary things, and I must say this, is uh, you, you find out that people, you know, the perspective. I think we've gained that now. Yeah, having dealt with it, you know, we've been exposed. We've we've we're now dealing with patients, and and as I mentioned, you know, the anxiety level has dropped a bit, and we're getting better. But I I believe that people who are, uh, you know, uh, in in companies are are just opening up, you know, they're screening forms every morning. But you know, three days in a row, there was a case of somebody coughing and having a headache. You know, so they screen, but there's no action. So so people are are, are not jacked up to as to. How to implement that and I think this gradual release from that hopefully will implement you know these type of screenings and and get everybody to the level of of a sort of a less anxious state and just you know get on with things Um, uh, and uh, ultimately it's it's inevitable but uh, now it's on our terms I believe. Have you got enough protection as medical practitioners? I I think so yeah so all our, our you know SOPs are in place there's Face shields, masks, you know, there's the whole N95 mask, but you know, the, the, it's, it's all about if you, if you have a mask and you have social distancing, your, your, your chances of getting this is extremely low. And you know, you, if, if, if you had a child that's got the flu, you're not going to take him to grandma anyway back in the day. So I said back in the day, which was six weeks ago or seven weeks ago, but, uh, you wouldn't do that anyway. So, you know, common sense still has to apply. And I think people are kind of seeing this as, a, as an Ebola in a way, you know, like you, um, we, it's, it's like you know, one touch and it's it's over, and that's not the case. You know, uh, you hear about the massive entities being shut down because somebody seven days ago was tested positive. Now, sure, that is an issue, and you've got to be vigilant. But after seven days, you know, there's been self-monitoring. There's been there's been people who might have gotten it, would have gotten it by now. So, so a certain amount of common sense needs to apply. And, and again, you know, I might be taking a bit of a less uh, uh, rigid opinion on this thing but we've reached the point like i said you know we've we've, we've dealt with it now the anxiety is a little bit less and we, we actually have to move forward and we have to go on Inside COVID nineteen News.
1: as we slowly return back to work there's a sense among office workers at the large open offices and chatting around the coffee machine or in the kitchen appear to be over Employees will be forced to make considerable changes to enable workers to return back to work safely. And some of these changes will remain when the pandemic ends. Bloomberg's Conrad Putzier looks at some of the measures that companies are considering and whether measures related to age could be discriminating.
4: I think the big thing that everyone's realized is that the office as we know it is over. Like there's not there's going to be any going back to the big open floor office the way we knew it before. And companies right now, while most people are working from home, are already working on all these changes to the office. So they're doing a bunch of different things. One of the more basic things that they're doing is they're moving desks further apart. They're putting up little plexiglass dividers, for example, between desks so that if you sneeze, you don't sneeze on your coworker. Um, they're doing things like they're cleaning offices more, which, you know, maybe some offices already did when people all stood there. Um, So those are the basic things, but what we've noticed, what is actually really interesting, is that a lot of employers are deciding they need to do a lot more to really keep their workers safe when they get back to the office. Um, And they're they're doing things that really would have been unthinkable to a lot of people just a couple of weeks ago, even. Um, For example, a lot of companies are now installing thermal cameras in the lobbies of buildings so that if you walk into your office and you have a fever, uh, the camera will notice this and maybe there's going to be someone at the door who stops you and says, hey, don't come in. You have a fever. Um, companies are now installing apps on their employees' smartphones that basically track how good you are at social distancing and who you come into contact with. Um, there are all these sensors and cameras in buildings that keep track of occupancy. You know, if, if the room gets too crowded, uh, the employer will know and they'll know who is in that room and who to blame. Um, so there's all this, essentially surveillance technology that's that's being added to the office uh, in the name of safety. The people that we've talked to have very mixed feelings about this. I think everyone recognizes that we have to do pretty dramatic things so that people can go back to the office and still be safe. Um, but at the same time, there are concerns, and, and there's a couple that we keep hearing about. One huge concern is that all this surveillance tech that's being installed may remain in the office permanently, even, even when the pandemic is over. So maybe over the next six months or the next year, that thermal camera is being used to take your temperature and these sensors are being used to make sure you don't come into contact with someone who is infected. But what happens when the pandemic is over? Are these sensors still gonna trace your movements? Is that gonna violate your privacy? So that's one huge concern. A um, second concern that we hear about is the potential for discrimination. So one of the things that employers are doing is they're considering dividing their workforce into groups based on how at risk they are to the virus. So Interpublic, uh, which is a huge advertising company, they are considering dividing their workforce into three groups. So level one would be you're young and healthy and you have antibodies against the virus. So you're basically safe. Level two would be you're young and healthy, but you don't have antibodies, but you're probably gonna be fine if you get the virus. Level three is maybe you're old, you have pre-existing conditions, or you're a smoker, so you're level three. And they basically want to group the workforce into these levels to then decide who can come back to the office at what time. And there's obviously a logic behind that, right? You want to make sure that only those people who can actually really be safe in the office go back. But the risk is that people are being discriminated against. You know, if you're at risk, you can't go back to the office that's maybe in your interest because it keeps you safe but maybe it has a disadvantage for you if you can't go to meetings if people don't see you in the office is that going to be harmful to your career and i think those are some of the issues that we'll be we'll be grappling with for months to come inside covid19 from news.
1: The list of big names in business in South Africa that are struggling to keep their doors open is growing. It includes Edcom, the owners of Edgars and Jat, that has voluntarily placed itself under business rescue. Comair, SA Express and Associated Magazines, that has closed its doors. A survey by Statistics South Africa revealed that 42% of the country's businesses are struggling and that they have run out of financial resources to continue operating during the COVID-19 lockdown. P.J. Feldhazen, a Cape Town lawyer from Gillen & Feldhaisen, who specializes in business rescue and director's liability, says companies in financial distress should not remain in lockdown paralysis. It's time for businesses to honestly assess their position and to consider options. He told Business that the moratorium granted by the Companies and Intellectual Property Commission during the lockdown period does not apply to third parties, which leaves any business under stress and their directors wide open.
5: I find that many companies at the moment are using hope as a strategy. And unfortunately, boards of directors have got a duty to operate in the best interests of their companies and all of the stakeholders. So what they they need to be doing is considering where they find themselves financially at the moment. And if they find themselves in financial distress, which has a, a definition in the Companies Act, which really means that if they aren't able to pay all of their debts as they fall due and payable in the next six months, or there's a likelihood that they may go insolvent in the next six months, they have to make a decision. They have to decide, are we going to be able to trade out of this? If we are, then we need to decide, are we going to do this through the mechanism of business rescue? If we're not going to use business rescue, then if we find ourselves in financial distress, we actually have to contact all of our creditors and all the other stakeholders, known as affected persons, and tell them how we intend to do this. Now, that has a double-edged sword because you tell your suppliers that you're in financial distress. It's unlikely that they're going to continue to supply you. But if you don't do that and you don't go into business rescue or you don't Uh, decide to go the full hog and go into liquidation or an offer of compromise to your creditors, you can find yourself in breach of your fiduciary duties as directors. And a lot of people have misunderstood the communication from the Companies and Intellectual Property Commission where where they sent out a circular saying that they won't be performing their duties in terms of Section 22 of the Companies Act, which is effectively where they investigate companies which are trading in insolvent circumstances, etc., To mean that directors simply don't have to apply their fiduciary duties in respect of trading in financial distress circumstances and that's simply not the case boards need to be looking at their at their businesses looking at the future and saying can we trade out of this or can we not if they find themselves in financial distress they need to be taking specialist legal advice and financial advice to say What are we going to do now? They can't simply sit on their hands.
1: Didn't the CIPC say that there was a 60 day window before they needed to do that?
5: Yes, but what they were saying is, look, we are not going to perform our services as mandated in terms of the Companies Act to investigate these matters. But that is simply a matter, I think, of the CRPC's resources not being available. It's not that you are somehow forgiven from your duties in the Companies Act not to trade recklessly, not to trade in insolvent circumstances, and not to trade with an intent to defraud your creditors.
1: Have you found that more and more companies are coming to you and asking for advice, saying, listen, we are in trouble? Have you got any idea of the figures of what the level of distress out there is? Look,
5: only anecdotally do I have any idea of figures, but my phone goes all day, all night, and it's... What is the the position with regards to financial distress, business rescue and liquidation? And what do I do about my landlord? Those are the two questions that I get asked over and over and over every day, uh, seven days a week.
1: I've seen figures from internationally, like places like the UK, they think a fifth of small businesses could go bust because of this. Is it small businesses, medium or large businesses that are in trouble at the moment?
5: I think it's everybody, you know. If you look historically, you've got a great business, it, it was going along swimmingly, declaring dividends, etc. But now you have no customers. So it doesn't matter how well you did in the past, unless you've hoarded up some financial reserves. And there is no hard and fast rule as to who this applies to. I think it's to everybody.
1: Do you have any idea which sector would be most affected by this? Because if you look at tourism, I mean, nothing is going on there at the moment.
5: I think that uh, tourism and hospitality, definitely. I think that the hairdressers, uh, anywhere where there's close physical contact like that in the cosmetics industry, I think that they are definitely seeing the the downside of this. And I think that they will probably be worse than anybody else because you can't cut somebody's hair remotely. You know, the restaurants are able to serve takeaways and and deliver food, but that's not nearly what they need to be able to survive. I mean, they they didn't start out as takeaway stores. They started out as sit-in restaurants. You know, they're they're not allowed to sell alcohol, which has, of course, been one of the the big money spinners for restaurants. I really think that when people find themselves in in distress, they sit on their hands. So the disputes that are going to follow this, I think people should rather than finding their way into a court when the courts reopen because of course you know that the courts are all but closed at the moment but for extremely urgent and COVID related matters people should really be considering mediation as a as an alternative to approaching the courts and 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 utilizing litigation there are so many well-trained commercial mediators out there to be able to resolve disputes quickly and, and efficiently they can do it remotely uh, you know, I was involved in one on, on Zoom the other day It was a very, very uh, big dispute involving millions and millions of rand Tens of millions of rand And it was resolved in two days And I, I really think that the companies in disputes with each other Especially landlords and tenants Should be considering this as an alternative
1: Were people perhaps waiting for the help from the government? Did they possibly think that the measures announced by the government would help them?
5: but I don't think that any measures announced by the government are going to help you in in a dispute with your landlord or in a dispute with your supplier. All that's happening at the moment is uh, the deck chairs are being shifted around the Titanic because if you're not paying your rental now, when the courts reopen, you're going to have an unsympathetic landlord who's going to take action against you and you might find that, you know, there's a lot of noise around uh, force majeure, and supervening impossibilities and possibilities of performance, all kinds of things like that. But do you really want to test that in a court some months down the line? You might find that it goes against you either way as a landlord or a tenant. It's much better to come to a, a mediated commercial solution now. So we've prepared sort of templates, solvency and liquidity Excel tests that you, you can basically punch your numbers in and say, OK, well, what does it look like? And then we're preparing like a decision tree for for directors. What do you do now? And all of these things are being conducted via Zoom and via Microsoft Teams. So companies don't have an excuse to say that they don't have access to the the specialists to be able to advise them. Every every day I'm on Zoom calls with clients saying, okay, well, what are we going to do? What's the strategy? And if you don't employ that, I, I promise you what will happen down the line at the wound licking ceremony is people are going to go into liquidation. And after the liquidation, there are going to be insolvency inquiries and creditors are going to say, now, board of directors, you knew this, why didn't you take action? And there's a very real possibility then that boards of directors can be ordered to pay the the debts of the company personally. And in terms of Section 424 of our, of, of our 1973 Companies Act, which is applicable to liquidations, if a board has been trading recklessly, the, the board of directors and anybody it's not just directors, anybody who was, was managing the trade and affairs of the company. So even if you're not called a director, but you're like a shadow director, you call them in England, um, you, can be, you can be ordered to, to uh, pay the debts of the company.
0: This has been episode 31 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg until tomorrow. Cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.